You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Megan Bloomfield may look like most girls, but she has a terrible problem. You don't even like to kiss me. We think you're a lesbian. So now they're sending her to a place. It's only for a few months. Rehab, honey. Uh, Homosexuals Anonymous. That won't take gay for an answer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Looks like we got you just in time. I shouldn't even be here. You don't have any unnatural thoughts. I don't think it's unnatural. Aha! When you have inappropriate fantasies about girls, you shock yourself with a shock. That's sick. Feel the friendship. This is bull, Megan. It doesn't work. You are who you are. The only trick is not getting caught. He wants to be with you. Feel the love. To be inside you. Love muscle thrusting. Or better yet, just cop a feel. Boys! Don't you see how sad and pathetic you all are? Okay, who wants to go down with me? I can't wait to be straight. Natasha Leone. I'm not perverted. I get good grades. I go to church. I'm a cheerleader. Clay Duvall. I like girls a lot. Kathy Moriarty. What is it, Joe? What about foreplay? No, foreplay is for sissies. And RuPaul Charles. I myself was once a gay. But I'm a cheerleader. Because friends don't let friends be gay. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Joshua Grinnell. Hello, I'm thrilled to be back. And also joining us for her first time in the booth is Ms. Cassandra Baker. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader. Released in 1999, the film stars Natasha Leone as Megan, the titular cheerleader who seems to have some very unnatural urges, according to her parents, teachers, and friends. She's sent to a camp where she gets re-educated in the ways of heterosexuality. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen it before, you may want to track it down before listening to this podcast. Joshua, when was the first time you saw But I'm a Cheerleader, and what did you think? Well, I um, actually saw it in San Francisco when it played at the Frameline Film Festival, which I guess was back in 1999. I remember loving it. You know, I I, I thought it was great. I, I liked it right away. I mean, one, I remember thinking at the time that it was a really important movie because this tired stereotype that lesbians don't have a sense of humor still kind of exists. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, how great for Jamie Babbitt to make one of the, you know, campiest, funniest queer movies, you know, I'd seen, you know, as far as new queer cinema goes. So, yeah, I thought it was great. And the the fact that the subject matter, you know, is, it's kind of serious stuff. I absolutely agree. It is a great representation that, just because you're into chicks doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. That's exactly correct. But the first time I saw this, I was just hitting puberty when this came out. So it would must have been on one of the cable networks, I'm sure. You know, late at night, I didn't know what this was. And I was just completely captivated by the whole thing. I already knew by that point that... 
you know, I was bisexual, so it wasn't really kind of the, you know, oh my God, this is me moment, but it was definitely relatable. And it was the first real relatable content of that type I had been exposed to, um, not counting, uh, my exposure to, um, cis gay men, um, culture, you know, that that's kind of been on the borderline of pop culture, you know, since I've been on this planet, but lesbian representation, not so much, especially in a comedic context, like, like Joshua said. Somebody at Lionsgate really liked me and sent me some screeners completely out of the blue. I don't even remember who this person was or why they sent me screeners, but I remember getting a care package of a bunch of DVDs, one of them being Vincenzo Natale's Cube, which we've talked about on the show before, and another one being But I'm a Cheerleader. I had no idea what the movie was until I put it in and started watching and was completely delighted. And this is a movie I've gone back to many times in the, gosh, has it been 20 years since this movie came out? So, yeah, it's uh, it still plays as well today, I think, as it did in 1999. And we're going to be talking about a few other quote-unquote re-education films that were coming out last year that were super serious. And here's this movie 20 years earlier, or 19 years earlier at the time, doing pretty much the same story, but in a much lighter and easy-to-take way, but still packing quite a punch. It wasn't until just recently that you this is being tackled as subject matter. So I am surprised that it has taken as long as it has for some good dramatic pieces to come out of this. But I, I'm super glad that we've had this movie for 20 years. That's a, it's a long time. It's had quite a cultural impact, at least from my perspective, particularly this year with it hitting its 20th anniversary. Uh, there's been article after article and, I think uh, Natasha and uh, Clea were both on the recent season of Drag Race, which was fun. So uh, there are subtle references to it, you know, subtle nods to it, uh, which I do appreciate. <laughs> I really like these opening credits where we've got the very sexualized fragments of women's bodies. And then we've got the great uh, Chick Habit song by April March, which... I think a lot of people might remember that. Well, I don't know how many people saw Death Proof, but <laughs> I mean, so maybe not a lot of people remember that it was in Death Proof, this weird kind of tacked on China girl Kodak lady kind of music video thing that Tarantino was doing at the end. But I think they use it a, a much more effectively here as these opening credit songs. And frankly, all of the music in this movie is really well done. I especially like that kind of homespun. I don't know if there's both a, a xylophone and a marimba, but just that kind of like 1950s kitschy kind of thing. And they play upon the kitsch and the camp so well in this movie throughout. Jamie knows what she was doing, especially like, you know, some of the first people that we see in this movie are Mink Stoll and Bud Court playing Natasha Leone's, uh, Megan's parents. And right from the get go, it's just like, okay, we're in this kind of land. You know, this is not pure John Waters, but we're getting 
into that area with having Mink stole and then Bud Court just really doing his best as her father. I thought that they, you know, as a couple, they really go well together. That casting to me was so inspired. And I really remember thinking like yourself, okay, this really tells me what universe we're in, you know, right from the get go because uh, of the, j- just the fabulous casting. And what's even better about it is that the two actors who you could sort of, um, you know, read immediately as campy cult movie icons, both of them play the, the, the parts really pretty earnestly. They do a really great job of, of playing her parents. And of course, also the uh, production design and art direction of the film was really pushed right from the beginning. So, you know, you know, with the chick habit song and the colors and the costumes that the kitsch level is going to be high. And I would agree with you that the soundtrack is phenomenal. A few years ago, I was able to do um, a celebration of this movie uh, at the Castro theater. And it was so much fun to put the opening number together, which we basically just ended up doing like a whole medley of songs from the movie with dialogue interspersed. That soundtrack still holds up as great. Has that soundtrack ever been legally released? Like, or is it just like people put together a, a, um, a playlist for it? I don't know. I haven't ever purchased a soundtrack for the movie. You know, we just collected the songs, but I wonder if it had, I mean, maybe, you know, back when the uh, film was doing its festival tour or something, but who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I know there's different rules as far as um, licensing music for a film. And then it's a, it's a different negotiation when you're going to put out a soundtrack. Right. And unfortunately with a lot of lower budget films, and this was kind of on the tail end of that indie wave of the nineties that we've talked about on the show before. And with this, they maybe didn't have enough money to put out a soundtrack. Who knows? So I'll have to, I I could be speaking completely out of my ass on this one. So, but I seem to remember hearing that there was no official soundtrack released, which is kind of a shame because yeah, there are some really great songs on here, but kind of like you have collected them over the years. Like, Oh, what is that one? Okay. Yeah. And track that one down. I love this whole thing of her, Megan, uh, having flashbacks to the other cheerleaders when she's having this just such a gross kiss with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend (laughs) is just this complete buffoon. And the way that he's trying to kiss her, I mean, it is just not appealing whatsoever. And when she ends up wiping his kiss off, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I would too. I'm sure he's left a lot of saliva on you. It's hilarious. That whole scene is just so funny. And, you know, I have to say, I have very little memory of seeing it back in 1999, other than remembering that, you know, the Frameline audience. I mean, Frameline Film Festival is just the best. And seeing movies, especially queer films at the Castro Theater, is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But, you know, because I got to screen the movie more recently, a few years ago, for a sold-out Castro Theater audience, what's cool about the screening more recently is the response of the audience who grew up watching this film. You know, people like uh, Cassandra, who's 
sexual awakening was related to this film. And then people who watched it over and over again, and people who have huge crushes, you know, on Clea and Natasha, who, you know, I had Natasha there at the, you know, at the screening. I mean, not to be name droppy, but she's a close personal friend of mine. Oh my. So, you know, (laughs) she, she, well, she's the star of my movie, my feature film. And um, so, you know, it was, it was an amazing response because it has that cult movie audience now who's anticipating the next scene and then cheering for it and screaming and booing. And, you know, it's just, it's really fun. It's a, it's a true cult movie. It has a huge cult following. I imagine that the audience has to go crazy when RuPaul shows up as Mike. Oh (laughs) yes. Well, I mean, especially now, I mean, now that RuPaul is, you know, I mean, back in 1999, you know, RuPaul had already become a household name, you know, in 1992 with Supermodel and and just breaking through that pop culture um, wall that no drag queen had really broken through before. And uh, and now she's done it again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and now now even more so, you know. Yeah. (laughs) But the audience went crazy for her. Something we definitely weren't quite used to back in 99, though, was seeing RuPaul not in full drag. Um, That's what really stood out the first time I saw this. I think maybe the only time I had seen him out of drag before this might have been Sabrina. Uh, And that's like the only context, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, Now, nowadays, you know, I believe he's he's been quoted as saying, you know, you got to if I'm going to be doing drag, you, you better be putting money in my pocket. You know, I'm paraphrasing, you know, but uh, <laughs> that, you know, it was is the total opposite uh, back in the 90s. If you saw him out of drag, it, it that was the spectacle. So <laughs> uh, and in fact, uh, rewatching this uh, last night, actually, with my brother who hadn't seen this movie since, you know, I was you know, a teenager. Uh, and right before his character comes on, my brother remarks, don't you think RuPaul would have been great in this role? And I said, buddy, <laughs> who do you think that is? And as soon as he, the first words come out of his mouth, he's like, oh, I hear it now. I'm dumb. I'm sorry. <laughs> But he was still remembering it from way back then, and you just didn't see RuPaul out of drag. So it was it was kind of a novelty back then. There's no way that this guy is the same as that gorgeous, statuesque creature with the two-foot-tall hair and just, you know, curves all in the right places. And then it's like, really? That's the same guy? I, I can't believe that. That's That's kind of remarkable. And I love him with that goatee and the straight is great t-shirt and oh my god (laughs) you know if he bulked up for this role at all he seemed like in really good physical shape i do not know if he had to go through like any sort of christian bale transformation for this role it was probably just the illusion of drag that's probably it but uh it did stand out to me That he was he was really playing his character, who is a counselor for uh, the uh, re-education center. Uh, he's playing that role both with subtlety and the over-the-topness you would expect of RuPaul. And it's, it's a very, it's almost the perfect role for RuPaul. <laughs> Nobody seems to be taking this as far as they could like this could be played 
to the hilt with all of these roles, but I don't think, for the most part, that people are overdoing it. No one's chewing on scenery. Everybody seems to know what the joke is, and they're in on the joke, and no one seems to be out of step and being too big for the role. I don't know if you guys agree with me on that. The casting of RuPaul as Mike, and then RuPaul's performance as Mike being, like you say, pretty restrained to some degree. That The comedy is the fact that there is something so real about all the people leading an ex-gay camp or ministry being drag queens or like the gayest people ever. So I think in a way, Jamie Babbitt was just so brilliant and pointing out the irony there that sadly and tragically, you know, queer people sometimes grow up to hate themselves so much that they're led into these sort of church situations and, you know, kind of perform these sort of lies in their, their real life. You know, it's the cliche of, you know, the politician who's the most homophobic, who's passing the most, you know, against gay people, that those are often the people caught in some, you know, cruising bathroom, you know, getting their, you know, dick sucked or whatever. And it's like, I feel like they didn't need to go too over the top because it was, in some ways it was just so real. That it would be someone like RuPaul, some ex-drag queen. I like that everybody seems to know that Megan is gay except for Megan. And then all of their quote-unquote evidence that they have, like the Melissa Etheridge poster, that she's a vegetarian. <laughs> Just all of these major red flags for them. By their criteria, yeah. I knew a lot of closeted lesbians back in the 90s. <laughs> and then when she ends up going to this place, this camp, True Directions, that's where things really kick into high gear, especially when it comes to the set decoration and the use of color. And everything is so coated pink and blue. And by all of the women that are at the camp being put into these really pink outfits and all the boys being put into their blue outfits, just really trying to reestablish the heterative, uh, heterosexual norms. It's just like, okay, you know, they're, they're really doing it up. And then even when she's going to the camp, I love like all of the pink outside of the true directions house. And I think the one thing that really speaks to me about this place that is run by Kathy Moriarty as Mary the one moment that really stands out for me is when she has those fake plastic flowers that she's trying to plant in the front and just that everything is all artifice. Nothing about this place is real. It is all just this big show that they're putting on trying to reinforce these roles that just mean absolutely nothing as they are. It's all really so well done. Like all the touches are, you know, really uh, appreciated. And of course, with any great cult movie, you know, an, an audience who watches the film over and over again really appreciates that stuff. And for a character that isn't really developed much beyond like, this is the big bad of the movie uh, and has, you know, issues, uh, <laughs> uh, there's so much subtle things going on again for something that is so lambastic as you know a pink baby pink and baby blue house and artificial you know flowers in the front yard 
it tells us a lot about this woman and where she might have been and what she might have been through. We don't see any partner, uh, husband or boyfriend or any kind of romantic interest for this person. But she obviously she has a son. He's in the movie. And we're led to believe this is our biological son. So it really draws a lot of questions in my mind. How did this woman get here with this son? She both dotes on, but I think that child had a very interesting upbringing that was very, um, it was one way, one minute and the complete opposite the next minute, Uh, just a very interesting messed up character that Kathy Moriarty plays. Yeah. And I've read a couple different versions as far as what her backstory is. Like, did she create this camp just with the idea of quote unquote, curing her son of his homosexuality? Or was it that coupled with, was she, was her husband gay and left her for another man? And now she's completely vindictive about that. What is the story when it comes to her? And she could be humanized a little bit more and give us this kind of thing. But I like that they don't do that. She starts off as a villain and ends as a villain. And that's all there is to her. And I really appreciate that. She doesn't get that moment of humanity because in essence, she's a monster and we don't need to make her a human. And I just feel so bad for her son throughout this entire thing. And the way that she is just constantly harping on him to, you know, toughen up and be a man. And then all of these, you know, macho trappings that they have, like Mike, the RuPaul character with his, you know, grabbing his crotch and the way that he puts his hands on his hips and stuff just to like be extra butch. That seems to be a common theme among uh, re-education films. The, the fact that, these people that go through this, particularly those underage, they love and respect their parents. That's why they're here. And that is just a a, a highlight of that. The fact that this is a, a grown man. He's still living with his mom who is crazy and is doing bad things to people. But it's your mom and you love her. So you're still there. So I, I like that the son character is in there. I think he is a really good character for his, you know, he's kind of, you know, dumb jock, but also gay. But he's also much more than that because of the actions, the choices that he's made to still be there. For Kathy Moriarty is this brilliant, incredible, you know, actor who, you know, I just love, you know, every time she's on screen and you know, she's often cast as these sort of problematic <laughs> villains. And I, w- I was thinking about the movie Soap Dish, which is such a great film, but it has a really problematic ending. I mean, especially now because, you know, Kathy Moriarty, who's like kind of the monster of the of the show, um, you know, is revealed, is exposed to be a trans person at the end which really is, is just a final punchline of, you know, she, it, it's made to be the butt of a joke, you know? And I think in a sense, you know, Jamie was playing, you know, in, in Jamie's film, of course, it's not problematic because the filmmaker knows exactly what they're doing. The character is supposed to be homophobic. And part of the um, joke there is that it's not necessarily the softest, most feminine woman in the world, you know, um, playing this, this role. 
And, you know, I think we've seen that again, much like the RuPaul character, you know, um, oh my God, I, I, of course her name escapes me. But when I went to Penn State University, oh, Rini Portland, that's her name. When I went to Penn State University, there was this basketball coach, uh, you know, who was the coach of the, the women's basketball team who made her own royal proclamation that there would never be a lesbian on her team. And this is, you know, in the mid well, earlier 90s, you know, and it was shocking that she uh, could just come out and say that. But what's hilarious is if you look her up, and you watch an interview with her, or you, you notice her at these press conferences, you know, it would be hard for anyone not to read her, you know, as a lesbian. You know, she's a butch woman, and, and, mm-hmm. and she's the one saying, no lesbian will ever play on my basketball team. The Kathy Moriarty character is, is J- Jamie kind of playing with those, you know, honest truths about, you know, sometimes the most homophobic people out there, the people fighting us the most are just like deeply closeted, you know, which is really, really sick and sad. Kathy Moriarty's incredible voice, that just gravelly great voice that she has, really helps add to a mannishness to her character because otherwise, I mean, she's very feminine in her looks, but then she wears those great it's like PVC outfits that she has in this. And it's just like, what amazing outfits and, and costumes to have this actress in. Yeah. The Norman yeah, Rockwell fetish here in this was pretty good. And I mean, little things in here, like uh, Clea Duvall, like one of the first times that we see her, she's eating sushi. And it's just like, okay, that's nice. You know? And they're not like bringing huge attention to it is just like, okay, this is like a little background thing kind of, you know, so it's just these nice subtle touches that are happening in here. Cause again, this could go completely off the rails, but they treat it so well. And uh, I like that uh, Hillary, the Melanie Linsky character showing her around. I love Melanie Linsky and I've talked about her a bunch on this show. Um, She just, I mean, she stole Heavenly Creatures, that movie is just absolutely incredible. And apparently, Jamie cast her in this after seeing her in Heavenly Creatures. And she's terrific as this kind of meek, wallflowery lesbian and showing uh, Megan the ropes. And that incredible chart that they have where they all have their check marks on it. And I like that the, the structure of the film is breaking us down and actually showing title cards for each step of their rehabilitation. And the first one is the whole idea of admitting you're homosexual. And it's like, okay, we've all admitted it except for you, Megan. Now you have to admit it. And that she finally realizes that, you know, Oh, I might be gay is, is uh, quite a moment for her because then she gets to put on those horrible pink clothes like the rest of the women. I mean, I know we started talking with, um, the casting of Ming Stoll and Bud Court, and of course we just discussed RuPaul and Kathy Moriarty, but the young people in this movie, like Melanie Linsky, incredible, Clea Duvall, I mean, Natasha Lyonne, um, and Michelle Williams is in the movie. You know, I mean, these are, you know, God, Jamie, Jamie really, you know, uh, could could tap star quality. I mean, these are all young women who at the time were, you know, were working in, you know, indie movies 
And they've all gone on to have huge careers. I mean, massive. Right now on the air is the whole Fosse Verdon miniseries. So it's like, yeah, there's Michelle Williams right there for you. Right. And, you know, Clea Duvall's just coming off of Veep, you know, a number of seasons, you know, was one of the stars of Argo, which won Best Picture. You know, Melanie Linsky shows up in, you know, uh, project after project. I don't think she's ever stopped working. Yeah, Cleo Duvall, it still breaks my heart that Carnival never finished. Right. I am with you on that. That's still one of my favorite shows that just did not get a satisfying ending. <sighs> I have some um, good good insight about Ms. Um, Cleo Duvall, who I met through um, Natasha. And this is just so funny to me, and I love sharing it. Well, Clea loves drag queens, and uh, Clea and her wife Mia uh, and my partner and I, you know, became close a few years ago. And one of the things that we really bonded over is I produce uh, a, a big haunted attraction in San Francisco, an immersive theatrical, basically, if you took an immersive play experience and mashed it up with a haunted house. I do it over at the San Francisco Mint in the fall. And Clea is obsessed with haunted houses and escape rooms. I mean, not like a little bit, but like fully uh, fan who goes to everything. And she can she can tell you which escape rooms are the best, which you shouldn't bother doing, which haunted experiences are good. I mean, she even does like the extreme ones, you know, the ones wow. that I probably wouldn't do <laughs> oh, the ones so where they make you sign religion. clauses and stuff before you go in <laughs> exactly exactly I mean, even for ours you have to sign um a waiver form you know because mm. uh you know it's just standard procedure now but you know like th- those those ones where you're like um did i just agree to let them cut off my finger i'm not sure so. <laughs> i love me a good haunted house but i've uh, never been to any of the the super big attractions that's that's on the bucket list I'm in the middle of uh, rural Tennessee. There's not a whole lot going on. (laughs) Well, I bet. I mean, you know, these haunted attractions are big business down in the Midwest and in the South. So I would guess you have some pretty cool ones. One thing to connect it back to, but of my cheerleader is I did ask Clea what she thought of doing a, you know, if I, if I were to be able to pull off a gay haunted house, you know, she loved that idea, you know, where, you know, the glory holes have, you know, medieval, you know, axes swinging back and forth, you know, and, and who knows, you know, whatever, you know, but, but all sorts of, I, I, I'm, I'm still really thinking for pride one year, I need to do a gay haunted house. Some of the, the theatrics that go on in here remind me of those like hell houses where it's the whole, like, you know, Oh, I gave up my baby or this happened or just all of these horrible, like Christian scenarios. And I love that, they have to get to their root and figure out what has made them gay. And again, it's like, it could get really super personal and it could be like, you know, Oh, well, you know, scout master priest, whatever. But instead it's like, my mother got married in pants or I was born in France, <laughs> things like that, where it's just like these, these uh, excuses that they find are just amazing. And that, you know, Mary is absolutely fine. Oh yeah. Well, that sounds like a great excuse to me or like even playing into it where, you know, it's like, Oh, my dad was out of work. My mom ended up being the breadwinner for a few months. And, and 
Mary's right there. Kathy Moriarty, like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. You, your father was emasculated, all these things. So you got confused and now you want to be a lesbian. And so we'll put a stop to that. And just, yeah, the ridiculous levels that she's going to, to find these quote unquote roots for these kids and try to, you know, explain away the gay. And then we have, you know, poor little Jay in there who's just like, I like balls. I love that character. It's, for as little as she's in the movie, a, a big impact out of the character of Jan. Um, uh, Katrina Phillips, I believe is the actress's name. Uh, just a, a great job uh, with that. And again, totally relatable being the in sports, played softball way beyond when it was you know cute. So <laughs> I get that. I feel where Jan is coming from to a degree. <laughs> It's like you're making a lot of assumptions based on somebody's, you know, appearance. Yeah, what a brave thing to do too. That that incredible haircut that she's got, that she's wearing a mustache through this film. It's just like, wow, okay, you're really going for it. Absolutely. And some of us have hormone imbalances and, and our bearded ladies. That's that's the real tea right there. That is that is a struggle as a as a teenage girl. <laughs> So I loved that that little bit uh, to her her character design. It was very well laid out, and again, excellent casting. She did an amazing with the with the small role that it was. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot to play with, and then the goth girl doesn't have a whole lot to play with either. And then she kind of ends up being the snitch later on. I was like, oh, I really wanted to like you more. Kind of makes sense because teenage girls and jealousy. So I you know I didn't anger me or anything. Even watching it today. I get that, you know, <laughs> like she was pretty, oh, you know, open that she had a crush on, on Graham Clea Duvall's character. Nope. No, thanks. Not interested. And you'd be bitter about it. You know, that's just what you do as a teenager and sometimes well into adulthood. So <laughs> it really normalizes them as teens. And mm-hmm. one, one of the things I was going to bring up earlier that um, I think is important is that this movie especially in sort of a in a comedy sense was you know really ahead of its time in a lot of ways because it was a movie made by queer people for queer people and not that someone who's not queer can't really enjoy it like you were saying Mike the whole nod to to sushi you know that is a very funny joke but if you're kind of a clueless straight person who's not really connected with queer sense of humor or you know uh, our our cultural comedic tropes or whatever you're going to that's just going to go over your head you know um mm-hmm. so i i think one of the things that's really nice about this movie is it just really normalizes queer kids you know young people uh, up till uh, uh, you know around up till around this time like people were afraid to make movies about anyone that was queer who wasn't you know an adult and it was around this time that people started to look at you know young people's experiences and you know looking back on it now i'm like my really close friend in high school chris he was a beautiful gay kid and you know we grew up together and both our families were very, very Catholic, and I was lucky. My parents didn't believe in being homophobic and left bullshit, you know, um, at the door when it came to Catholicism. My mother was very much a feminist, and I think when they realized that they had not one but two gay sons, they really kind of drifted away from the church. And even though we continued going to Catholic school and I graduated, 
Chris did not have that experience. You know, his family was super Catholic and he loved his mother. He adored his mother and she sent him to, you know, ex therapy camp. And, um, and he went through this and it wasn't like this movie, you know, it, it, it was um, mm-hmm. horrible. He ended up running away from camp and home. They, you know, electrocuted him there amongst other horrible things. So this movie, you know, came out maybe for me, maybe five or six years after, after dealing with a friend. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that the queer community has always done very well is survived ugliness through comedy. And we've, you know, I, I remember when I first moved to San Francisco and heard people telling AIDS jokes and they were, you know, longtime survivors of HIV, people who had survived having multiple bouts of full-blown AIDS. And I remember being a young person and just shocked by that. But you learn really quickly, like, this is a survival mechanism. This is healing. This is how communities survive. So I think back on this movie and I'm like, God, it really was ahead of its time because at its core, the subject matter is quite ugly and abusive and awful and real. These things still exist, although some states are outlawing them, which is kind of amazing. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to throw that in there that this this is a lovely I think Jamie and this film, it's a lovely example of how the queer community can make, you know, work for the queer community. And, and there is this sort of healing quality to the, the fact that it's comedy. And you get those little moments of truth, like you're talking about your friend being electrocuted, and they've got those little like shock things where it's the aversion therapy. So just taking the idea of that and then playing it for laughs rather than you know, showing the real horror of that situation. And that's the whole thing is they take these real things and they kind of turn them on their head and just make them so overblown. You know, you're talking about how your mother was a feminist and, you know, she would probably flip her lid if she saw like the way that Mary is trying to teach the women the proper role and the whole idea of like her having the girls vacuuming while Mike is outside changing the oil. And I love all of the gay kids outside and just them looking at Mike under the car and all of those great phallic images that are going on with the wrench and all that kind of stuff or, uh, you know, and then the, the one son who's, um, you know, raking and stroking the, <laughs> the, the rake. But I really love when they're doing like an army thing later on and, uh, there's the, uh, silhouettes of the soldiers and it looks like one soldier is giving another soldier a blowjob and it's just like, oh, that is fantastic. And I think we're what, just a few years after Don't Ask, Don't Tell at this point. Yeah, it wasn't that long after. You know, we think about a movie like this and if it had been made the same movie, the same script by a straight guy, let's say, it never would have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. He would have gotten it. He wouldn't have been able to ride the nuance of the comedy. It would have felt offensive, you know? What we know now, and and most people have known for a long time, is when you allow and you give access to storytellers who don't often um, have access or haven't had access, you get better movies and better stories and more u- unique experiences are shared. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big horror fan. So for me, 
Get Out was such a breakthrough moment and really kind of shocking that, you know, there really hadn't ever been uh, a studio made horror film by a black person. You know, that's kind of weird considering what year it is. So, yeah, I just feel like Jamie Babbitt made this movie in a way that, you know, it, it really needed to be made by a queer woman. I just wanted to touch real quick on the XX gays because I am a huge fan of Richard Mole. So seeing him show up in this movie and again, they're kind of playing on that Richard Mole as Bull from Night Court and just that extra super tough guy that he can be because Richard Mole is just so intimidating with just his look. And so him being that cuddly, what are they, layer bear, I think they call him. Yeah, layer just, bear. <laughs> oh, it is so terrific. I love the chemistry between he and Wesley Mann, Lloyd and Larry Morgan Gordon. So, again, I love that they're introduced that way, too, that they have the same last name, that this is a married couple, and here it is in 1999. And it's just like, oh, that's so good. And they're just such nice examples of these two normal gay guys who are then trying to deprogram the the kids that are getting programmed and they have this safe space for these kids is super nice and just I really appreciate their chemistry. Yeah, it's another really, really nice touch and I honestly think it comes from a real place. I mean, I think there are, you know, I've, I've read and heard from people who have um, become XX gays who then make it their mission, you know, to save these kids. So there is this real real truth to it, you know, but yeah. And I feel like that those characters in that moment in the film is maybe one of the most earnest um, and sweetest moments in the whole movie. Yeah. They are really so nice. I would like to spend an afternoon with the Morgans. You know, they just seem like such nice guys. And uh, when they're not taking the kids over to the cocksucker. <laughs> bar, <laughs> I did like that. Uh, a uh, scene in the movie where the the kids and and Kathy Moriarty they're standing outside of their place and they're protesting, and it, you just have this briefest of moments where uh, I believe it's Lloyd and and um, Kathy's character they have kind of this civil moment between each other that these people used to be friends. He used to work at this place that she runs. They knew each other, and there's just this super brief like almost non-existent but it's their moment where they just see each other as people and she's like i'm trying to help people here she's honestly convinced of this and it's a very telling scene on you know both of these characters and and where they're at you know and what their objectives are but but that they they don't hate each other like there's just i think you're doing horrible things to people but we used to be on good terms because that's also very true to life you know a lot of these people that did work at these facilities you know they may not have ill will to their former colleagues and just that brief moment where they show that said a lot and from what you're saying joshua i mean anybody that worked at one of these places that didn't buy what was being sold yeah i think i would make it my mission in life too to try to de-educate the re-educated people just because it sounds like an absolute horror show. 
one thing that I found to be really super sweet is that we can make fun of cheerleaders very easily. It's such an easy role to make fun of. And especially in 99, this is pre bring it on. You know, we, we haven't had like that breakout moment of cheerleader movies like hots we've had before, you know, and we've had pom pom girls in those, but the whole idea of like, cheer work is real work that Megan sticks to her guns and that she maintains that she's a cheerleader and that that ends up being her way of getting uh, the Clay Duvall character back to her. It's just one of the sweetest moments. I find this moment so much sweeter than anything that I've seen in a lot of romantic comedies. Like this is a lot sweeter than Lloyd Dobler holding up a radio over his head and playing Peter Gabriel or anything. This is the real deal for me. I agree with you. I think Same. again, that thing about it that's so lovely is, is it just, it resonated on, it doesn't matter if it's same sex or opposite sex or what gender people are crushes when you're young, you know, puppy love, young romance, all of this stuff is, we're we're all interconnected. And that moment, you know, resonates with anyone who has a heart. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with director Jamie Babbitt, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. The sun dips down under the old pier. Darkness fills the sky. Suddenly, you see glowing eyes rise from the shadowy depths. Female hands with razor-sharp claws dragging you into them. Night Waves. The debut novel from David Irons. From Cosmic Egg, an imprint of John Hunt Publications. Night Waves. Can you survive it? Available now at all good bookshops. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly fake ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneat.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com 
I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. I'm very curious when it comes to anybody that works in show business, how you decided to get into show business. I was always interested in the theater. So I started off as a child actor at the Cleveland Playhouse um, in Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up. And I worked at the gift shop. And then I was a small part in some of the productions. And I just continued doing theater stuff in junior high and high school. And by the time I finished high school, I knew I wanted to continue in the theater department. And I became most interested in directing. When I went to college, I was doing the directing program at Circle Rep Theater in New York City. And I thought I wanted to be a theater director. And after studying with some theater directors, I realized that I loved directing, but I was more interested in film and television because there's something about directing a play and at the end of it, this immense sadness that it's never going to happen again and you have no record of it, that I thought, wow, it's so much more fulfilling to direct something, go through all the pain and suffering and childbirth of it, and at the end, have something that lives even longer than you. So uh, my second year of college, I started interning for Stephen Haft, who produced Dead Poet Society, and he was on the board of directors for the Sundance Film Festival. And I asked him if he could send me to Sundance on his behalf, since he was on the board, to help out. And he said, sure. So I went to the Sundance Film Festival during the summer and was working on the grants and helping them with their finances and then asked the woman who was in charge of the um, festival if I could work during the festival. And she said, sure. And so I started working at the Sundance Film Festival when I was in college as a volunteer. And then through Sundance, I started realizing that Sundance was a great platform for short filmmakers to then become first-time feature filmmakers, and then meeting the first-time feature filmmakers who were getting agents who were then starting in the business. So I just started learning a lot about how you break into film at Sundance. So my goal was to make a short film, have it go to Sundance, and then make a feature film that debuted at Sundance and start my career. So I started working towards that. So my last year of college, I was an intern for Martin Scorsese, and he was directing The Age of Innocence at the time. So I started learning about shot listing and just the different things that are involved with movie directing as opposed to theater directing. And then I took a short film class at NYU during the summer where you make a short film. So I started working on the short film format 
Um, and after I took that NYU class, I took a couple more classes at NYU just as a summer student. Um, and then I started making my first short film, which was called Sleeping Beauties. And that was at Sundance in 1996. And through my short film, Sleeping Beauties, which starred Clea Duvall and had a very similar aesthetic to But I'm a Cheerleader, I started developing the script for But I'm a Cheerleader and got the financing for it the year after the short film and then made the film and then debuted it at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2000. You sound incredibly driven and like you just had this whole plan that you laid out for yourself and then ended up following, which I just, I can't commend you enough on that. I was very determined to have a career as a director and I did not know anyone in the film business and I'm from Ohio and I come from a family of doctors and lawyers. So I was very determined to break into the business. And so I really investigated the path that people had taken before me and then just very aggressively pursued that path in hopes that it would pay off. And it did, which was great. Now you and I were about the same age and I imagine that you're working at Sundance, what, early 90s? Early 90s, yeah. And late 80s. Late 80s too. Okay, so that's when things are really starting to heat up and people are really starting to pay attention to Sundance. It was a nice time to be at Sundance because it was before it got totally insane. So it was still a small indie film environment, but it was a great place. To, I mean, I was an intern at the festival, so I was as low as you could get, but I was able to observe the power players and how kind of the system works um, and how the filmmakers were just regular people like you and me. And that was really encouraging because I think it's really important as a young director to see people who look like you doing the directing. And so at Sundance, I would see these just very normal young women making their first films and think, oh, I could do that. I could be like that person. And I think when you see something, it's easier to put yourself into knowing that you could do that. And it, they don't be, they're not these mythical people anymore. And I think that was the nice thing about working for Scorsese, too, is that here's a king, a giant of cinema who, when you go to the office every day and you see this, you know, short, sweet, very hardworking, very bright, energetic person, you're like, oh, this is just a person. And he has a family and he lives in New York and he works hard and he has, you know, people who hate his movies and people who love his movies. And he's just a guy who's, you know, trying to get by. And that was very encouraging as a young filmmaker to see just in the flesh and blood people who I thought of in this mythic way. And how could I ever be this person? And then you see them and you're like, Oh, I could be this person. You make the, the short film, actually a couple short films. And then you go from that to, but I'm a cheerleader. And that leap from shorts to features is always an interesting one as far as, you know, who decides like, this is the person I'm going to back this project and we're going to get the funding together for this. I mean, there usually is a whole lot of machinations going on behind the scenes before they give you that green light for this. 
Yeah, so I went to the festival with Sleeping Beauties, and it was starring Clea Duvall. He was a friend of mine. And at Sundance, we met this executive producer, Michael Burns, who at the time had just kind of come to L.A. to start a film company. He was actually the vice president of Prudential Insurance. And he was a young financier who wanted to get into the movie business. So I met him and said, hey, you should see my short film. And so he went and saw the short film and he said, oh, I liked it. And I love that actress. And I said, oh, you know, she was at Sundance too. So he met her and he really liked her. And I said, you know, I have a script that is similar to the short that I would love for you to finance. And then we could be here next year and we could have a movie here. And that was very appealing to him because he was a financier who wanted to kind of legitimize himself. So here was someone saying, here's a script that's ready to go. And here's a star, Kalia, who wasn't really a star, but he had seen her in a short film and liked her. And he said, well, you know, I'm just a money guy. What is the premise of the movie? And I said, it's two girls who fall in love at a gay rehab. And he was like, oh, that's a really funny idea. I like that idea. Basically, he said, well, how much do you need? And I said, well, how about 500000 Because I knew that it would, he would be personally financing it. And I thought that was an amount that he could maybe afford since he was a, you know, credential insurance person. And he said, okay, well, 500,000, that's, I think I could figure that out. And I said, okay, great. Let's start as soon as Sundance is over. So basically we hired a casting director. We had an office and I would just go every day and start having auditions and trying to get people attached to the movie. So we got RuPaul and we got Kathy Moriarty, and we were looking for our lead actress, and we knew we had Clea Duvall, who he likes in the short. I really liked Rosario Dawson for the lead um, of But I'm a Cheerleader, and I had met with her in New York and her mom, and she was young. She was Puerto Rican, New York, and just thought she would be great. And so I told the casting director, I really like Rosario. Let's make an offer to her for the lead. And so she called the financier and said, hey, we're going to make an offer to Rosario Dawson. And he said, no, I'm not comfortable with that because she's not white. And if you think about a cheerleader, it really needs to be someone white. And I, I grew up in Cleveland where none of the cheerleaders were white. So I was like, really? That's, I don't see why that's important. And she's really great and she's beautiful and she's funny and he said, you know, no, I'm really not comfortable. So that was kind of the first wake up call of like, wow, okay. You can't really get everything you want as a director. And so at the time, Slums of Beverly Hills was being made. And I knew Tamara Jenkins from NYU. And my friend Clea Duvall was friends with Natasha Leone. And she said, hey, I know someone who would be really good for this movie what about Natasha? And I said, well, is she willing to audition? Because she, to me, I feel like Rosario is more appropriate for the part. Natasha is very New York, very like East Village, big hair, loud, crazy voice. Like she just seemed so like Jewish New York downtown. Like I just, I don't see that as a Midwestern cheerleader. 
And I said, but I would love to see her audition because Rosario blew me away in the audition. And she said, well, she's kind of a star. I don't, she's coming out in that Woody Allen movie um, as the lead. Like she's definitely not going to audition for this low budget movie, but she'll meet with you. So I was like, oh God, okay. Well, I'm sure she'll come to the audition looking like a Midwestern cheerleader because she's an actor and she knows that she has to kind of show that she can do something else. So I fly to New York. I go to this East Village coffee shop and Natasha shows up in platform heels, ripped fishnets, a leather mini skirt. Her hair is like teased out like three stories tall. She's totally insane. She's very New York. She's 100% not Midwestern cheerleader at all. And she's like, oh, what if, uh, my friend Kalia said, you know, there's a movie and, you know, she's hot. I want to do it. And I said, okay, well, you know, this is the project. It's a Midwestern cheerleader. Oh, okay. Well, what else? And I said, you know, Bud Court is going to play the father and Mink Stoll is going to play the mother and Kathy Moriarty is going to be in it and RuPaul. And she was like, Bud Court, Mink Stoll, I'm doing this movie. I love those actors. Harold and Maude's one of my favorite movies. I love Mink Stoll from John Waters. I got to do this movie. And I'm thinking, I'm glad she's really enthusiastic about it, but I'm very nervous that this person is so wrong for the part. And so I walked away from the meeting and Natasha was all excited and said, I'm doing the movie. I can't wait to have Bud Court and Mink Stoll be my parents. That's who I think of in the world as my parents. And I said to the producer, you know, really, you really think that this person is right for it? And he said, well, she's hot. She's hot. She's in this Woody Allen movie and she's doing all this stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, I know she's, the camera loves her. She's very charismatic. She's very funny. And she gets along well with Clea, which is great because they're going to have a love story. But I'm a little worried. But okay, if she's so excited about it, I'm sure she'll transform for the movie. And I just have to have a leap of faith. So basically, I kind of reluctantly said, okay, let's go for Natasha. So then the movie got greenlit. And I said, you know, with Natasha, because she is the lead of this Woody Allen movie, and now it's got Kathy Moriarty and all these other people, I really need double the money because she wants a trailer. She wants her makeup people. Like, I need a professional environment. I can't have them, like, changing in the car, which is the $500,000 movie version. And he said, okay, you know, I'll give you double the money, but then I get kind of all the upside of the profit if the movie does well, because I'm, I'm risking a lot. And I said, that's fine. I just want a career. So I don't care. You can take all the money, you know, if it makes any money, if it ever, you know, is anything you can, you can have the profits from that. So I've never received a penny from better mature leader. I see it on HBO today and you know, it's, I've never gotten one penny from it. I don't regret that deal because I'm very happy the movie got made. And I am happy I had the leap of faith in Natasha because I put a wig on her. She transformed. She is an actress and she played someone very different than herself. But the camera loves her. She's very charismatic on camera and she's very funny. So, and she had a great chemistry with Clea. So in the end, it was a great decision.
So how do you decide that this is going to be the project that is your first feature? How do you come up with the idea and then kind of flesh that out? I had made Sleeping Beauties, which was kind of a feminist lesbian revision of the Sleeping Beauties fairy tale, just because I always loved fairy tales and always thought there was some comedy in changing them into kind of with a feminist lesbian bent. And then when I was thinking about my first feature, I had grown up basically in a rehab because my mom ran teen rehab for drug addicts and alcoholics in Cleveland called New Directions. So I always wanted to do a movie about a rehab because I knew a lot about rehab life and the Kathy Moriarty character is based on my mother. And my brother ended up going to rehab. So the rock characters based on my brother. So I just had a lot of familiarity with the world. And then just as a young gay person, I really wanted to have my feature debut be really about my kind of personal life and my queer life. And I was really interested in gay movies at the time and felt like there wasn't really a movie for a young queer person in New York that could make fun of the community and not just make a sad movie about AIDS. And I wanted to poke fun at my own community. And I just felt like there weren't a lot of funny, irreverent gay movies. Mostly just because I feel like the community was still in shock from AIDS and from all the sadness. And then just like any movement hadn't really hit that moment where they could be irreverent about their community because there was just too much pain. So I was wanted to to a movie that would appeal to someone like me, which was basically a 20-something lesbian. So it just came very organically, wanting to do that. And I remember telling my mom, hey, um, this is the script, and I'm trying to get this movie together. And my mom said, are you sure you want to do your first movie with that has gay themes to it? I just worry that it's going to really limit your career, and you're not going to be able to have a career if you do this. And I said, you know, Mom what I've seen at Sundance and what I've seen in the indie film community is that if you don't do a movie about something really personal, then you, the movie won't be good. Like the only way to make a movie good is to make it as personal as possible. So I think later in my career, when I can take risks and just do stuff that is not that personal, but I'm just interested in that's when it's, I'm going to have a career, but for your first movie, you have to make it as personal as possible. And she was like, okay, I don't really know anything about movie business. So, you know, I trust you to make the right decision. You didn't have experience with gay conversion therapy, did you? I had no experience with gay conversion therapy. I basically came out when I was in college and my parents were supportive. I mean, they were a little weird at first. Uh, My mom said, I'm just surprised that you're gay because you were never good at sports. So I think she just had never really, she knew lesbians, but she never had met a femme lesbian who was just, didn't really, he was, was unathletic and was not a butch, you know, to her, that was a lesbian. So she was just kind of confused, but she, and she did cry actually when I told her and I said, mom, why are you crying? You have like a ton of lesbian friends. And she said, well, I don't want people to discriminate against you. And also you're not going to have children. And that's one of the main things that I've enjoyed in my life. And I said, mom, why are you saying I'm not going to have children? I'm going to have children. I've never thought I'm not going to have children. She was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, then that's fine. So it was pretty easy to come out. It was not a big deal. So I think 
I wanted to tell the gay conversion story because I knew I wanted to do a rehab story and I had read an article about someone who went through gay conversion and I thought it was very funny and ridiculous. It was sad, but it was just so absurd. And I thought what a perfect subject for an intersection of my life, which is a queer life and also knowing a lot about rehab and oh, something to make fun of. So it just kind of, to me, seemed like a funny subject matter, and uh, which is why I wanted to tell that story. What is it like for you doing that transition from theater directing into feature directing and working with these pretty seasoned players? I was lucky in that a lot of the cast of But I'm a Cheerleader was my age or younger. So for the younger cast, I felt very confident pushing them around. And as far as the older cast, I also felt confident because I had worked on other people's movies, like Scorsese movie. I had worked on a David Fincher movie at that point. I had worked for Nancy Savoca. I had worked on a crew um, for other directors. And so I had a good idea of how film production works and that universally, no matter who and the status of an actor they really just want to be directed. And I had been able to observe other big film directors directing big stars like Michael Douglas and Sean Penn with David Fincher and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer with Martin Scorsese. And so I had seen that in the end, no matter how famous the actor, they really just want support and someone to help guide them through and also to give them space to do what they're good at. So I felt confident going in that I had a good idea of how it worked on a film set. So I was very prepared, I would say, because I was so prepared and because I had worked for other directors and seen how it worked. um, I felt like I was in a good place to launch my own feature. I just recently rewatched this film is not yet rated. um, So I don't want to ask you, like the exact same questions that Kirby Dick asked and, you know, tell me the the story of the censorship of the film. But I I was curious, he asks you in this film is not yet rated. Will you being in that documentary affect your career going forward? And I'm very curious, did it affect your career after that? Being in this film is not yet rated did not affect my career at all. No. Challenging the ratings board did not affect my career. I mean, the ratings board was behind the times. And I think what Kirby was showing is that the culture had moved on and the ratings board was still these like dorky people in Orange County that were behind the times. So hopefully he held up a mirror to that ratings board and embarrassed them. And they did change. And I think, you know, you look at Greg Berlanti's movie, Love, Simon, that did not get a NC-17, nor was it anywhere close to getting an NC-17. And I think um, they've chilled out, which is great. How was But I'm a Cheerleader, how was that received? It was a mixed bag. It was a weird experience um, going through the festival circuit with a movie because, for example, I went, the first festival I went to with But I'm a Cheerleader was the Toronto Film Festival. That was our premiere and where um, Lionsgate 
well, it was actually first New Line, and then Lionsgate bought the film. And we had very mixed reviews. So I got an F in Entertainment Weekly, which Owen Gleiberman was the reviewer. I've never even seen an F since then. So, and I've been a casual reader of Entertainment Weekly for 20-something years. I don't think, honestly, I've ever seen an F rating. So I received an F, and I thought, wow, this is really crazy. Like, this is not a C. This is an F. So I've really struck a chord and offended people, which I thought was probably a good sign, because I'd rather get an F than a C. And then I got, like, an A from Roger Ebert. So I thought, okay, Roger Ebert made his crazy movie, which is very similar tonally and just what he was trying to do to But I'm a Cheerleader. He obviously had a sense of satire and um, comedy and the absurd. Um, And then someone who's a more straight-laced, like Owen Lieberman, really hates this movie. I mean, literally hates it. So, And then I went to France, and I premiered the movie at a gay festival in Paris, and I won. They said, oh, you can't leave the festival because you're winning all these prizes. And I thought, well, that's bizarre. And I won um, the audience award for young people. Like, they, the, all the young people vote, and they voted for But I'm a Cheerleader. And I knew that young people were super into it. So it was weird because anytime I had a 50 or older guy review the movie, which was most periodicals, frankly, it was Variety, it was Entertainment Weekly, it was Hollywood Reporter, it was, um, except for Roger Ebert, I got a horrible review. And then anytime it was a young person, male or female, I got like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. This is before it's time. This is really changing the culture kind of a review. So it was very schizophrenic uh, going through the, the festival process. And I thought, well, I really struck a chord. So that's good. But it sucks that, you know, all the established reviewers out there literally hate the movie, like hate it with a passion. So it was just kind of a confusing time. But I thought, well, I'm just going to forge ahead and, you know, time will tell and I'll just continue with my career. So I just kind of forged forward, but I did not get a three picture deal with Miramax or, you know, I didn't get any of the things that all the guys get when they have these hit films. Um, And I certainly didn't get great reviews across the board. So I was very lucky in that I, the first interview that my agent that I got at Sundance set me up with, I said to her, look, I want to do TV. I want to do movies. I want to do commercials. Like, I don't care. I just want to work. And she said, okay, well, I got this meeting for you. And I said, okay, who is it? She said, it's some guy who's starting a TV show. He's never done TV before, but he's interested in you. He saw your short film. So if you could just meet with him and, you know, see what happens. So I went in and I met with him and he was this really funny, weird um, gay guy who I thought, oh, I have a connection with this guy. Like, I get this guy and he gets me. And it was Ryan Murphy. And he was doing his first TV show. It was called Popular. He'd never done TV before. And I said, I really like the pilot and it's really weird and interesting and funny and I would love to do it. He really understands the absurd and the comedy and tragedy of high school life. So I worked, I got hired to direct one episode of the TV show popular 
And then after the one episode, Ryan was like, I really like you and think you're great. And do you mind coming and being a producer on the TV show and directing, you know, a lot more? And I said, great. And so I worked for him for two years and directed a bunch of episodes, maybe like 12 episodes or something of the show and had a great time and really enjoyed working with Ryan. And basically he started my career. And I mean, I was at the beginning of his career too. Um, so after two years, the show was canceled. Once again, people said it was ahead of its time and too weird for television then just kind of launched my TV career. Cause at that point I had 12 episodes of TV that I had done and a good recommendation. So I just started working constantly after that. Popular was such a great show. And I mean, I'm, I still see actors and actresses from that show show up in other things. Like I just saw what tag and I can't remember the actress's name, but the, one of the main characters shows up in that. And I was just like, Oh, it's that girl from popular. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, the show's from what, 1999 to 2001. And I'm still thinking back to it as far as what a great, great show it was. Yeah, and I saw last night the premiere of American Horror Story, and it's such a great premise this season, Apocalypse. And one of the main characters on it is Mary Cherry, uh, Leslie Grossman. Yeah, so he's still working with a lot of the actors from there. Um, And we're still friends, and he has obviously gone on to have a massive career. So um, I was very lucky that that was my literal first meeting in show business. And you've managed to bounce between TV and movies, I don't want to say effortlessly, because I'm sure every everything is a struggle, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun. But you have definitely have gone back and forth, which in the old days was never possible. But it's nice to see you be able to do episodic TV and a feature film. Yeah, I mean, the world, when I was starting in the early 90s, didn't really go together. But I think it was my generation of filmmakers who started the trajectory of going back and forth between the two. So, like, my generation at Sundance was, like, Miguel Arteta, who was also doing episodic TV at the same time as me. Um, And, you know, now it's directors like James Consult, who's doing television and TV, like a lot now, everyone's doing it now. David Venture, my mentor, is doing it. So, um, yeah, I was definitely one of the first people who was doing episodic TV and then setting up uh, my indie features. You know, it's it's two to three years or five years. You know, it's it's a long process to set up an indie feature. You have to find the money. You have to find the actors. You have to find the script. You have to put it together. So, for example, I'm shooting a movie this January that I've been setting up for four years. So that means I read the script. I really liked it. I convinced the producer and the writer to let me direct it. And then we've been hunting for an actor and then we found an actor and then we, with the actor found the money. So it's just, it takes time. So in the meanwhile, I'm just, you know, continuing to direct and I've worked right after I did that, those episodes of popular I directed a ton of episodes of Gilmore Girls with Amy Sherman Palladino, um, who's also one of the luckiest, most gifted writers that I ever had the pleasure of having a meeting with. And so I worked with her on a ton of episodes. And so I actually am in New York because I'm directing The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. One of the 
early fans of But I'm a Cheerleader who saw it when she was in elementary school was Lena Dunham. And so she was one of the very young fans who loved But I'm a Cheerleader. And so I had been directing all this episodic TV at the networks and really wanting to get into HBO, but had no access to get in there. Very tough to break into HBO. And Lena Dunham was like, oh, I love Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader. That was one of the first films I saw that I just really connected to because she was one of those young girls who loved the movie. And so she said, yeah, I really want you to direct an episode of Girls. And this was like in the second season. And everyone and their mother was trying to get in on that show. So it took a couple seasons to get in. But anyway, I ended up directing on Girls. And then HBO was like, oh, Jamie's talented. And so they started putting me up for the shows on HBO. So um, I went from Girls to they got me HBO executives said, oh, come in for Silicon Valley. So then I directed on Silicon Valley. And then Mike Judge was like, yeah, you should join, you know, the the staff. And so I was the executive producer and director on Silicon Valley for a couple of years. So, yeah, I've been very blessed to have the legacy of But I'm a Cheerleader. The great thing is, is that it didn't appeal to older people, but it really appealed to younger people. So as I've gotten older, all those younger people have become like kings of the business and all of a sudden, I'm relevant, which is awesome. I'm into it. Your critics have aged out. I love it. Yeah, literally. Like all those, I mean, Owen Weberman, I think, is still around. I don't know. But um, certainly, I'd rather have the Lena Dunham's of the world. And Megan Ellison, also, Annapurna, she was like, oh, but I'm a cheerleader. It was one of my favorite films when I was in elementary school. <laughs> so it's great. It's been really great. Well, Jamie Babbitt, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great talking with you. Thank you so much, and good luck. I'm writing it all up, and um, thank you for being interested. All right, we're back and we're talking about But I'm a Cheerleader. So I don't know what it was about 2018, but there were not one, but two conversion therapy movies that were put out within a few months of each other. Um, I heard a lot about Boy Erased when it came out, but I did not hear very much at all about the miseducation of Cameron Post. I don't recommend doing a double feature of these movies. One, you'll get really super sad. And two... They're really super similar, so maybe give yourself a couple of weeks in between these two because there were times where I was confusing the two movies when I was thinking about them later on. It doesn't help that both our main male character and our main female character from these movies are runners. I don't know. It's Joshua, is that like a gay thing? Do do, do are gay people runners? Is that like a that, that has not <laughs> my that has not been my experience. You know, so so I, I I'm I'm sure there are some gay people. My brother is gay and he runs, but I don't. I think it's just a strange coincidence. 
it almost seems like that's their way of clearing their heads when it comes to both of these films, is that if they can go out and go for a run, it's a good way of centering themselves. But it was just weird to watch these back-to-back and be like, what is up with running and these gay teens? It's a cinematic hobby to have. Oh, true, true. Yeah, when they grow up, they'll both be architects. <laughs> right. Did you guys get a chance to see Boy Erased and or The Miseducation of Cameron Yes, Bones? and I made the mistake of watching them back-to-back. So, so it was an interesting, very depressing set. <laughs> I did enjoy both movies a great deal, though, and I, I think both have things to offer that the other doesn't and are both worthy and worth see, worth seeing independently of each other. Like you said, like give it a break if you have you know, interest in both. For listeners who haven't seen one or the other or don't know much about them, these, these do not follow the tone of, but I'm a cheerleader at all. <laughs> and no, you know, are the, it, it, I mean, it is really interesting that they came out in the same year and, one is uh, about a young man and one's about a young woman. And yeah, it's it's the ugly, sad reality view of um, going through these sort of, um, I, I don't know what they call it, conversion therapy. Yeah, I mean, just real bummers. But I agree that they, they, they have something to offer and there's stories that should be told. I mean, but, but, but probably not something, you know, that's going to be a cult movie, either of them, anytime soon. I don't think anyone's going to watch it on repeat. If memory serves, both Miseducation of Cameron Post and But I'm a Cheerleader end almost the same way with both of our female characters. Where they're both in both films, they're they're driving off into the sunset, basically in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> I did like the Clinton girl, Clinton Gore uh, bumper sticker and the the radio station bumper stickers on the back at the end of, of uh, Cameron Post. That that was a nice touch, you know, because it's supposed to be uh, what ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, really grounded us in time. Yeah, the Boy Erased movie. I mean, I can tell why I heard more about that just because the cast of that movie having Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe be the parents. I was like, okay, yeah, no wonder I know this movie. The idea of Russell Crowe being a, a preacher, I think, really puts a point on the whole tie between Christianity and you know neo-Christian values, quote-unquote, and this gay conversion stuff, so that it really puts the two in the same place, which I, I think really needs to be talked about. And just the whole idea of, you know, you're not just making people better heterosexuals, you're making them better Christians, which is a horrible, horrible thing all the way around. Agreed. Right. That whole idea, too, it's weird when you think about, you know, the root, how they're looking for the root in But I'm a Cheerleader, and they're doing almost the exact same thing in Boy Erased when it comes to that, like, chart of all of the people in his life. Is it also that one that has the iceberg and all of the things under the surface? Uh, the or? iceberg was Cameron Post. Uh, the uh, family tree was uh, that where you're supposed to list all the vices and well sins of your family members, uh, and, and kind of this really elaborate family tree. Uh, that was boy erased. And they they're looking for drug addiction or just people wearing pants, uh, being born in France, all of those horrible things that can really put you on this path of homosexuality. It's weird how I can mix these two movies up because they are so close to one another. And that 
here they are in 2018 coming out, and here's But I'm a Cheerleader talking about the same thing. It just makes me curious, too, as far as how long have these conversion places been going on since they're basically you know, one's parroting and the other ones, the other ones are showing pretty much the exact same thing that seems like they've been using the same playbook for decades. I, it really does. And that's kind of just the church's MO. They don't tend to change much over time. Uh, so they, it's any faith based organization. You know, I believe they were talking about it in Boy Race, just how terribly written the the uh, handbook that they're given is just co- completely filled with spelling mistakes and grammatical errors and he points this out to his mom you know because she's not supposed to read it but uh she she's like i'm gonna read it anyway and he's like well i'm gonna warn you it's it's really hard to get through <laughs> it's just so bad <laughs> they misspelled god they made it dog that i remember that from the movie how does that get? I mean, it wouldn't come up on spell check, that's for sure. But the sad reality of it is that these movies and and I mean, what you what you're suggesting, Mike, I think is that it is shocking that these tired, inane, old ideas are still given any amount of power. But look at our president. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we 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 are. We, I mean, as much as I feel like since, you know, when I'm a cheerleader came out, you know, we're, we're light years ahead of um, where we were in 1999. But in many ways, we are not. You know, it, it's this sort of surreal when your, your president shows you and, and, and holds a magnifying glass up to the fact that we're surrounded by homophobic, misogynistic white supremacists. And there were definitely more in the world than I really ever realized. So it it, it is really strange that these old tricks and ideas that are just, there's no science uh, to back any of this shit up. Um, The religious part of it is all hypocritical. Um, and, Mm And many of these people have watched as their own church leaders have been, um, you know, arrested and, convicted of horrible crimes against children and and watched as their own church tried to, you know, cover that up. Yet they still show up and still support it. It's it's baffling what people will believe. Well not just the president, but look at the vice president who openly supports conversion therapy and it's just like, oh my God, really? That you can openly support this pretty much torture of young people, whether it's physical, mental, or both, and be able to be elected vice president in the United States, that's not the kind of country I want to get behind. With a good percentage of the population agreeing with him, it's it's obscene. Well, of course, makes me think he's gay. (laughs) Of course. Totally makes me think that he's gay. I mean, the first time I ever saw the guy. Doesn't he call his wife his mother or something? That's just a little weird in and of itself. I'm not. I'm not one of these these younger people that, that like to call their significant other daddy. That's just just weirds me out. <laughs> yeah, it's just one step removed from uh, Reagan calling Nancy mommy, which is just weird too. One thing I have to say about uh, Boy Erased is I loved Flea in this film. I thought that he was fantastic. 
Flea for me has always been like, yeah, he'll show up in a movie. He'll be like a wild character. You know, maybe you'll call him Marty McFly a chicken or something. But my God, was he spectacular in Boy Erased. I really thought he knocked it out of the park. I agree. He really stood out to me, uh, his performance. Uh, just him, you know, mocking him in the bathroom and then going and trying to pretend like he's on his side and, and hey, stay with us. You know, just that this is a hate filled man <laughs> trying to pretend that he's a good person. And that's so common. That is so common, uh, particularly with the people that, that do believe in this. You know, it's you just outwardly projecting this veneer of being a good person. And you're just completely rotted inside. And he definitely gave me that vibe. Cassandra, maybe you can correct me on this one, too. Do both of these films end with the head of the conversion place? I remember for sure in the first one, there's a title card at the end that says he went off to to live with his lover. Or like basically, the guy came out as gay after the movie. Does the same thing happen to our main character in the in the, in Cameron Post? Or not our main character. Does the same thing happen to the main uh, conversion guy in Cameron Post? I don't believe so. The last time we see like the head counselor in Cameron Post, he's just sitting there eating breakfast alone, and he does look sad, and he's kind of just kind of staring off into the distance. And this is shortly after his breakdown, where he just admits, "I don't know what I'm doing." So it's it's left with some ambiguity there on where that character is going to go. But it was a boy race that that had the end card saying that uh, he the lead person of the conversion. I'm not sure if it was a camp. It was like a you checked in and out every day. So I'm not sure you would call that a camp. But uh, yeah, th- that character in boy race he did eventually leave. All right. Well, on that cheery note, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. あなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの子とあなたの
That's right. We'll be back next week with Belladonna of Sadness. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Cassandra and Joshua. Joshua, what has been keeping you and Peaches Christ busy lately? Uh, just returned from being in England for oh, almost five weeks where we did Drag Becomes Her. Myself, Jinx Monsoon, and Binda Lacrim do a, um, a Death Becomes Her drag parody. So I'm, I'm back in... I'm back from that, and I'm I'm uh, actually prepping to get my next show off the ground, which is Bring It On, Queen. <laughs> Speaking of cheerleader nice. movies, appropriately enough. So, so Bring It On, Queen will star Bob the Drag Queen versus Monet Exchange, and that will happen at the Castro Theater on July 13th. This might be out of line for me to ask, but you've mentioned. Uh, Monet Exchange, Bob the Drag Queen, Ben de la Creme, Jinx Monsoon. Is Peaches Christ ever going to show up on uh, RuPaul's uh, Drag Race? Uh, well, I don't <laughs> think she'll show up as a contestant. I'll say that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, who knows? You never know. You never know. Are they going to wheel you out in a casket, too? Please say they're not. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what has been discussed. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't say very much, and who knows if anything will ever happen. But um, you know, I can say that I don't think I'd ever be a good contestant on the show because I'm old and I'm not competitive. Well, my interest is peaked. And Cassandra, what's new in your world? I'm mainly a behind-the-scenes type of gal. So, um, if you want to keep up with me, I am on Twitter uh, at Mama Cashew C A S H. UU, and I'll I occasionally talk about uh, what projects I'm working on at the moment. I've we've got uh, Sync Summit coming up in New York here in the next couple of days. Which, if you're a independent musician looking for representation, looking to get your music out there, get in touch with Sync Summit, uh, SyncSummit.com, and uh, you know. Register, you know, we they do a couple ones every year, and it's a great networking opportunity for musicians. So, uh, just brief plug on that. That's the latest thing coming up. But I uh, got some uh, K-pop, J-pop tours might be coming down the pipeline. That's predominantly what I do. Um, so, if you're into CL, AOMG, Rain, if you know for a throwback name uh, for the K-pop community. <laughs> Um, then yeah, give me a follow at Twitter. I occasionally post about what I'm, you know, currently into. I have no idea what you're talking about. I feel like you're just speaking a whole different language. Korean pop music. It is definitely its own world, man. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show. Oh, wait, iTunes doesn't even exist anymore. What the fuck am I talking about? I'm going to have to change my script from now on. I won't be able to say that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Times they are changing. Or you can head over to Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Patreon's still there. You can go over and make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating at the almost now dead iTunes helps the projection booth take over the world.
s'abandonne celui qui ne sait que laisser les cœurs blessés. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for For listening, Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.